Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, this is Adrian Hernandez, uh, host of NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds. And today we're here with uh, Leora Horwitz, who just uh, did a Grand Rounds on creating a learning health system through randomization. Leora, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So uh, it sounds like you've done something really remarkable in a very complex system, which is actually inserting randomization into the healthcare delivery system to uh, see what are the best uh, strategies of care. Can you describe a, a little more what, what you all have been doing? Sure. Well, it started probably two years ago now. Um, we uh, obtained some funding from one of the trustees at the hospital to start a program where we test uh, what we're doing every day. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of things because they seem like good ideas. Um, they're things to try to get uh, best practices adopted and used by patients. And um, we just do them. We have very little way of knowing usually if what we're doing is effective. And so we began by randomizing either um, doing them at all versus not doing them um, for some patients or, or randomizing different sorts, different iterations, uh, different strategies of uh, the intervention. Um, we do these uh, in pretty rapid succession. We, we uh, run them for a few weeks or a couple months and see how they're going, and then we can iterate if they're not going well. Uh, this is very similar to what industry does. They call it A-B testing in web design world, where they'll test one headline versus another or one color on a web page versus another. So they're, they're often small changes, um, but we are able that way to rigorously know whether what we're doing is effective. And if not, we can make it better. Now, New York is not necessarily known as um, the simplest place uh, for uh, healthcare. Uh, how did this fit in with um, the, the clinician community? Uh, how did it work? You know, it happens that I work at an institution that is um, very heavily data-driven. It's one thing that distinguishes NYU Langone from uh, many other health systems. So there's already a sort of ethos of... Um, pulling data and showing showing whether uh, what we're doing is is effective. There's dashboards galore. There's uh, a very robust um, research and clinical data infrastructure. And so the idea of um, of really proving whether what we're doing is working is is already pretty embedded in the culture. Um, so that's one thing that made it easier. And we're an academic medical center, so people understand about um, rigor and about research and about randomization and about uh, the importance of design. And they understand, most importantly, about confounding and bias. So um, in a sense, the culture here made it easier uh, to accomplish the work uh, you know, than it might otherwise have been. Now, uh, one of the things that people often talk about is that um, everyone loves the idea of a learning health system. And, and then when you go to um, an administrator and describe you know, actually doing a randomized trials embedded in the healthcare system, 
uh, they often get concerned about uh, timelines and and budget, and you know they need answers now or at least within a year. How did you approach it with uh, uh, your administration? Yeah, that is a real concern, and um, and historically, I think researchers have um, not always done a good job of making sure that what we're doing is on a timeline that matches what people need. Um, so that is a legitimate concern. Um, a couple things helped in that regard. So the first is that I run a center at NYU Langone, the Center for Healthcare Innovation and Delivery Science. And it's the job of our center to link research and operations to bridge the medical school and the and the hospital. That's our, our whole function is to be doing rigorous work, but in the health system in a practical applied way. So we've already set up uh, the sort of infrastructure to be doing our research work in a way that aligns well with operations. And second, it also helped, honestly, that they, the, the hospital administration had asked us to do some evaluation for them on work that was not randomized. So, for example, to evaluate their existing care management program. And um, we were able to uh, show them that it was very hard to do that evaluation given the degree of confounding and bias that was present. So if you have a care management program and you call everybody up and half the people answer the phone, and then of that half the people who answer the phone, half of them say, yes, they'll participate. And of those half that participate, half of them actually participate through the end. And then you look just at the outcomes of that tiny fraction that participates through the end. They look great. Um, And so we were able to very clearly show the institution that that the fact that those few patients look great does not, in fact, mean that their care management program is effective. Um, and we were able to really describe all of the biases that uh, accrue in that sort of um, evaluation. And so then when they said, but how, But we really want to have a care management program that works and we really want to know if it's working, then it was an easy next step to say, well, one way we could do that and have confidence in our results is to randomize. And so um, they had already experienced the the challenges of not using randomization and of just using uh, sort of observational data. And, and they already understood that that was ineffective or, or challenging. So that also made it easier. Wow, uh, that's really impressive because um, it certainly makes sense that um, one could go down the wrong pathway um, potentially spending lots of money and being precisely wrong and doing a then better randomized trial uh, helps uh, address that. Now, you, you talked about uh, ideal projects um, and their characteristics. What's been the, um, the most ideal project that you've all carried out at NYU? <laughs> well, the characteristics of an ideal project that we've been working out over time are, are several fold. One is they need to have high volume for precisely the reason that you asked me about before. We don't want these trials to take five years to get a result. So we want whatever we're testing to be occurring often. Um, And by often, we mean something like at least 100 times a month. Uh, But most of ours are, in fact, even higher volume than that. Second is we want there to be a pretty short-term outcome for exactly the same reason. Um, so we don't want to wait five years for the patient uh, to have a, a recurrence of their cancer or something like that. That's not a good um, use case for this purpose. We also need the outcome to be um, autumn already collected. That outcome needs to be part of our usual data collection activity. And that's because these are embedded 
in our existing health system. That's what makes this a learning health system uh, intervention. So we cannot be asking our staff to be collecting new data and doing new assessments and uh, looking for for new uh, work. So uh, that's another uh, important characteristic and that excludes a lot of important projects. Like we don't do projects that are looking to improve quality of life or physical function or, or things like that because that's not an outcome that we routinely measure. Um, so high volume, short-term outcome already routinely collected. And the last is a feasible randomization strategy. Again, we cannot be asking our frontline staff to be drawing cards out of envelopes or um, you know, doing, doing randomization uh, in, in, on the front lines. And we cannot be asking them to create new databases tracking who's been randomized to what. So we need to have a, uh, an ability to automatically randomize or to use pseudo-randomization in a way that um, allows the staff to do the work. So that's a long intro to the question of what's an example of an ideal uh, project. So I'll give you one example, which is um, we call every patient after they go home from the hospital, just about every patient, that's 20, 30,000 patients a year we're calling. And we ask them if they've um, made a follow-up appointment, if they have their medications, if they need any travel help, if they you know, have any concerns, if they are feeling sick. You know, We're trying to early on assess how they're doing so that we can hopefully avert a readmission by intervening early. Um, this is very resource intensive. Um, it has a high volume. It has a short-term outcome. They either get readmitted or not in the next 30 days. That's an outcome we're already collecting. We already know that. Um, and so it meets all of our um, criteria for a good project, except for the randomization scheme, which is a little tricky. So the way that our callers do their job is they have a list running um, on the computer that just uh, shows everyone who's been discharged from the hospital. And as someone else gets discharged, they add, you know, that name pops up on the list. Um, so we didn't really have a good way for them to randomize that list as it was occurring, but we could filter it. And so we filtered it and only showed the odd number patients, patients with an odd medical record number. Um, and so that's pretty random. And it was invisible to the callers. They didn't know that there were even number of people being dis uh, discharged. And that was an easy way for us to randomize who was getting the calls and who wasn't. And we discovered after a very short time um, that in fact, those calls were not reducing readmission rates at all. Uh, and in fact, they did not even in increase patient experience ratings, patient satisfaction with the hospital. So they were accomplishing virtually nothing. Um, and that allowed us not to fire all the telephone callers, but instead to reassign them to only call the high-risk patients using a different script that we're testing now um, and allowing us to really focus in on who we think we might be able to affect, potentially, therefore, uh, making better use of our resources. So that's another trial we're running now. And if it doesn't work, then we'll test something else. That's a terrific example. So. Uh, uh, and I, I think it's something for all of us to, to learn. Can you um, talk about the issue around quality of, um, of uh, care versus research, uh, quality improvement uh, versus research? Uh, it's something that I know you've um, directly addressed and uh, how you um, put uh, the program that you're leading into that framework. 
Yeah, this is a very gray area. It really is. And um, there's no hard and fast rules that we have found it, uh, you know, that are easy to apply. And, and the federal government provides some guidance, but even that guidance is, um, is you know, a little vague. So we sat down with our Institutional Review Board director um, before beginning any project and spent several months really hammering out how we think about quality improvement and versus human subjects research uh, at NYU Langone. And we really uh, tried to qual- sort of characterize the differences between the two. I, and again, I will just say that this is an overlapping, great, complicated area. Fundamentally, though, we feel that quality improvement is really about trying to get what we already know to be best practice or evidence-based care um, provided routinely and most effectively, as opposed to research where we're trying to understand what is the best practice? What should we be doing? Is this medication even effective? Second, quality improvement is really done by the people on the front lines who are delivering the care and implemented right away. So the point of a quality improvement intervention is to see, you know, can I get this best practice uh, implemented more effectively? And if so, you just do it for everybody. Whereas research, you will discover whether something is effective or not. And then you you might or might not apply that across your health system, but it's not uh, obligatory or even, frankly, very common um, to do that. So those are some of the sorts of distinctions that we make between quality improvement and research. And uh, we built a checklist based on, on some of these rules. And before we start any project, we go through this checklist and we see, can we feel, you know, does this... Uh, seem to meet the standards of quality improvement as we've defined them here at NYU. And if so, we fill out the checklist, we print it out, we sign it, put it in a file cabinet, uh, and that's our um, our sort of due diligence for quality improvement versus research. As a consequence, m- the vast majority of these projects are do uh, qualify for quality improvement status, which means they don't qualify as human subjects research and are not subject to uh, some of the um, the regulations around that. Terrific. Uh, so last question, um, how much does all this cost? Uh, it seems like you guys are doing a lot. <laughs> we are doing a lot. Uh, we do, uh, you know, about 10 trials a year usually. Um, well, we have specially hired for this program now, um, one full-time program manager, uh, two full-time research assistant sorts of people, um, about a quarter of a data uh, analyst whose job it is to uh, do the analysis, um, some fraction of a, of a person's time uh, in our research IT core who's pulling the data out of uh, our electronic health record. Um, and then we have a little bit of a statistician time and, and of course, my time for oversight. Um, collectively, that's about $250,000, $300,000 a year. Um, however, I will say that there are many other costs that are just covered in kind by the institution. So the IT department is has been wonderful about creating new best practice alerts for us and then changing them six weeks later after we've run one iteration and then changing them again six weeks after that when we want to run a second iteration um, and creating new filters for us and uh, and new registries and lists and so on. And they do all of that uh, without charging us. It's Again, the institution considers us part of the way we do business here. One one thing that we do here is we are a learning health system. We are iterating. So they just 
fold that into operational costs. Um, and similarly, the you know the staff who meet with us to plan all these trials and to talk about them and to see how they're going and to you know brainstorm about them, we don't pay them for that. That's again considered part of their job here at a learning institution. So there are other costs that we're not officially counting. Well, terrific. Uh, so you all uh, have really been leading the way, and I hope uh, everyone else uh, can lead by your example in creating a learning health system through uh, randomized uh, trials embedded into the system. So Leora, thanks for spending time with us mm -hmm. on this uh, podcast, and please join us for our next podcast as we continue to highlight uh, uh, interesting areas in the research world. Thank you. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website, and we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. <music>